0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, and we're going to read the first seven verses of Romans chapter 1. We are now over halfway through the Bible reading through a year program. What is it called? The 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 one year Bible program. We're halfway through that. Six months in, we're halfway there. So congratulations if you've been keeping up. And if you haven't, keep going. As Steve has often reminded us, it doesn't matter how quick you are at reading it, as long as you are. This morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, the first seven verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be His holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just take a few moments and pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can come now to spend in your word. We want to hear from you. We want to hear you speak through your Apostle Paul into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives in a life-transforming, gospel-shaping way. We pray now that you would help us to understand, help us to see, help us to listen. We pray that you would use Paul and these words here, just the introduction, Lord, but that you would use it in a way that would change our lives to be more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you're familiar with the New Testament and the epistles or the letters specifically, you will recognize this format, this typical standard letter beginning format. Paul begins his letter to the Romans like every other letter usually began. And we see that it contains three components, three things that are usually unique to ancient letters. And that is the author or sender, and that's identified. Paul identifies himself as such the addressees, the recipients, the people that Paul is writing to, and that's the people in Rome, loved by God and called to be his holy people, and a greeting, a hello, how are you? This is standard letter formatting. In fact, you you pick any of Paul's other letters, you open it up, and it will have a similar format. However, Paul often, when he writes letters, will often reshape His greetings reshape the way in which he opens a letter. They retain the same format, they all contain the same things, but they're all often extended or adapted or changed a little. Because Paul seeks to convey the gospel even in his opening words. We haven't even gotten to the bulk of Paul's letter, and yet here he crams so much into the first six or seven verses. This is not only the longest of Paul's Openings, Paul's greetings, but it's also the most theologically complex. There's so much in these first seven verses, and this could be for a number of reasons. Paul has never been to Rome yet. We read down in verse 11 that he wants to get there. He's never been there, but he wants to be there. He's never been to Rome. He's never met these believers before. And as such, he's writing to a church he didn't establish. Many, if not all of the other letters that we read from Paul, He's writing to churches that he's been to, churches that he helped found as a a missionary sent out by the Jerusalem church. But this is not so with this church in Rome. He's not yet ministered among these people, yet he plans to be there as soon as possible. And as a precursor to his arrival, as a precursor to him showing up and ministering there, he writes this letter. We, having the rest of the New Testament, having the book of Acts, having about a dozen other letters that Paul has written. We know a lot about Paul. We know a lot about his life. We know a lot about his conversion, his ministry. But these people in Rome have no idea who Paul is, and they have never sat under his teaching ministry. So what does Paul, what is his priority? What does he want to convey in the first opening words to these people who don't know him? What does he want to say? What does he want to communicate? What is his priority? And the first thing that he does, well, is one, identify who he is, Paul. Paul. But he identifies himself, first and foremost, as a slave, as a servant of Jesus Christ. That that term, servant, I know you've heard this before. Steve has expounded upon this before. The term servant, slave, it it does. It, we shouldn't have um, this idea of 19th century African slave trade when we read that word slave. What Paul is doing here, his identification as a servant of Jesus Christ, what he's doing is saying, this is, this is where my allegiance is. This is where my allegiance lies. I am owned by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ owns me, my life, my ministry, and all that I do. He does not ally himself to any nation or political ruler, as so many people in Rome would have done, Caesar. He does not identify himself with a religion or a code of conduct, although he could have done that, and he does do that in other places. He was the Jew of Jews. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, if Anyone had any claim to any religious right, it was Paul, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't even call himself a servant of the church. Although, that doesn't mean that he wasn't a servant of the church. For surely that is why he writes this letter, to serve the church. You read the book of Acts, Paul served the church, but he owes himself to no one else but Jesus Christ, not to any other man, not to any other organization or nation, not even to his former way of living. He owes himself to the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. There's another thing that Paul does with this opening, and another reason why his identification as a servant of Jesus Christ is significant is because of exactly how much we know about Paul. Think about the lengths Paul went to in order to minister to people the shipwrecks he endured, the beatings that he endured. Think about the energy that he put forward for the gospel message, the distance that he traveled numerous times to spread the gospel. Think about the time that he spent in individual cities to preach and teach, sometimes three years, sometimes seven years. Sometimes he's in such a rush to get to so many different places, he can only spend a few weeks, but he always wants to come back. He always wants to write letters. Think about how much he cared about people, both generically as a a church, Broadly, he cared about the church in Ephesus and in Corinth and in Galatia, so much so that he would write letters and send people to encourage. But he cared about people specifically, Timothy, Titus, Silas, Phoebe, Lydia. He cared about people specifically. He put a lot of time and effort into these people He wrote letters of encouragement and rebuke that would become a part of our New Testament scriptures, became a part of the Bible. He debated religious elites in the synagogues. He confounded the skeptic and he defended the faith before judges and rulers. Paul, if nothing else, in our human understanding of what a hero is, is a hero of the church. Paul has done it all. Paul's the guy that we all go be like Paul. Look at what he's done. Follow Paul's example and yet he, he doesn't he doesn't reference any of that he calls himself a servant he does not begin his letter by saying look at look at all that I've done look at the work that I've done look at the, the record that I've established in the ministry of the gospel of God don't look at me now and listen to what I say he says look at the one I serve Jesus Christ and listen to what he says Paul identifies himself first and foremost, a servant of Jesus Christ. Our identity, individually, congregationally, it, it can't be found in our actions of service, but in the one that we serve. It just can't. Your worth must not be found in how much you know, for almost certainly there is somebody who knows a little bit more than you, And Paul certainly knew a lot. He certainly had a good handle on on the Old Testament and how it pointed forward to Jesus. A Christian's worth is found nowhere else outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we owe ourselves to nobody else but Jesus and him alone. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul now identifies himself a little bit more. And this is actually a typical opening for Paul. You read some of his other letters. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We now see the authority that Paul has been given. He was commissioned by the Lord specifically. We know the story of his conversion in the book of Acts. And he was called to be an apostle. This, p- this past week, I was um, speaking at... Uh, the on-site ice hockey camp that was going on. And we had a break in between the ice hockey sessions, and I was asked to be the chaplain. And so I, in one of the sessions, I was trying to explain who this guy Paul was. I had read a verse from Romans. And who's this guy Paul? Who, who's he talking about? And I told them about the story of, of Paul on his horse going to Damascus and the Lord Jesus Christ showing up before him and knocking him off his horse. And one little guy over here, he went, wow, really? Jesus did that? He knocked him off his horse. I said, yeah, that's, that's what happened. Jesus showed up and knocked Paul off his horse. Wow. Why would he do that? I said, because Paul wasn't paying attention and listening very well, so Jesus knocked him off his horse to get his attention. Now pay attention. <laughs> and then we moved on. We all know that story, right? We're all familiar with Paul's conversion. And then we're familiar with these words that the Lord spoke to Ananias a little bit later. Paul is now in Damascus. He's blind, and Ananias is worried. What? What about this guy Saul? He's been showing up. He's been ravaging the church. He's been putting people in prison. And the Lord says to Ananias, "Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, and their kings, and to the people of Israel." Paul was set spar- set apart for a specific reason for the purpose of the gospel of God, chosen by Christ to do this very thing. This term, gospel, as I'm sure you know, you've heard before, means good news. Paul was designated to be a preacher of the good news of God. And if you're familiar with the letter to the Romans in any capacity, whether you've read it just once through, whether you've read snippets here or there, you will know that the good news of God is a key theme for Paul. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, is not a small thing tucked away, hidden away, or even just kind of thrown in here at the introduction. This is what Paul is writing about. It's a key theme. He will cite Old Testament passages in his letter because he is drawing a connection between the Old Testament use of good news, the good news of God, which, in context, is God's intervention for his people in the last days. He, he quotes those, knowing that people will have an understanding of what good news meant in the Old Testament context. And he points forward to the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises of the good news in Jesus Christ. Paul's ministry, apostolic in nature and specific in purpose, chosen by Christ, is a proclamation that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of restoration and renewal, and that Jesus alone is the source of hope, and in him alone is real good news found. The Gospel of God, the Gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Gospel. Although only realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that is the bulk of Paul's argument, gospel, good news, hope, restoration, renewal, faith, only found in Jesus, nowhere else. That's his message, but it's not a new message. Jesus The the, the Jesus part is, because Jesus had not come in human form yet, but the message of good news, the message of restoration, the message of the gospel is not new. It had been promised before Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures, pointing forward to Jesus himself. We have the promise in Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium of The serpent biting the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. We have Paul's words in Galatians 3 that say this. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Hang on to that phrase. We'll get to that later. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, meaning Gentiles are also descendants of Abraham if they have faith. And announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. And here's the gospel. Here's the message that was preached to Abraham in advance of Jesus Christ's arrival. All nations will be blessed through you. Good news. But not new news. We've heard this before. We should have been ready for this. You read the Old Testament. There is this anticipation that good news is coming. Because it was promised beforehand. Paul has a heavy focus in his letter to the Romans on the connection between the Old Testament, specifically the promises of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Constantly drawing connections between, look here, look at what was promised here, and look at how it's fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 2 here in Romans 1 and verse 26 of chapter 16, right at the very end of uh, the letter, serve as brackets for the whole letter. They form the inclusio of the letter. Remember, Steve mentioned that word last week. They, they form and help give the lens through which we interpret and read Paul's letter. Prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Jesus. The gospel of God promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son. The gospel of God does not exist apart from the Son. That is to say... If you do not have the Son, whoever that may be, not identified yet, we know, okay? Wink, wink. We know We know who that is, okay? If you don't have Jesus in your news, it is not good news. We need to remember this as we do all of the good things the Lord has called us to do, as we do all of the Christian things, the Crestwick things, all of the on things, all of the good stuff, our neighborly things, the things that we do for our co-workers. As we do all of the things that the Lord has called us to do and commanded us to do, we need to remember that if Jesus is not in it, it's not really good news. The good news of God is both news from God and news about God. The good news is a person, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David? Now, there's a lot jam packed just into that one phrase. Earthly life could also be translated according to the flesh, fleshliness. And Paul's use of this phrase is not referring to sinfulness as he does elsewhere in referring to us living according to our flesh, our sinfulness. That's not what Paul means here. He's referring to Jesus' humanity. Jesus was really human. He really had flesh. He was a real human being. And this is a huge, deep, important subject that requires a lot of consideration and a lot of thought, and it's worth thinking about and reading books about, the humanity of Jesus Christ. But I don't want to take too much time here, so let me just read one passage from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. He too, that is Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That's important, that is helpful for us, because all who have faith are descendants of Abraham. You have faith in Jesus Christ. You are a descendant. You are a child of Abraham. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. We need to understand the humanity of Christ, not separated from his deity. We need to understand and grasp and comprehend that Jesus was a human being like you and me if we want to have a proper understanding of the atonement. If we want to have a proper understanding of what happened on the cross as Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Christ's humanity is important as well as his human heritage. So he's, he's a real human being, big subject. Leave that for later. But, but why is that also important? Because we see that he came from David, a descendant of David. This is not just some cool, fun fact that Paul throws in here. It's not an unimportant, neat idea that Paul decides to just abstractly toss in there. We're meant to remember who David is. We're meant to recall all that David was and did. We're supposed to remember 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wanted to build a house for the Lord. He wanted to build the temple because the Lord was still, the the ark, the altar was still in the tabernacle, the tent that was made at Sinai. David wants to build a house, but the Lord declares that it won't be David who builds the house. It won't be David who builds the temple. It will be his son Solomon. God says this to David. The Lord himself will establish a house for you. So, no, David, it's not going to be you, but instead I'm going to promise something else to you. I'm going to establish a house, not a physical house, not that God was going to build a physical building like this. He was talking about offspring, a dynasty, a line, a lineage, a heritage. I will establish your kingdom, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David, that's a great idea. Love it. Great. It's not going to be you. Your son will do it. And on top of that, I'm going to promise something for you, David. A house established forever. That promise for an eternal, forever-ending kingdom can only be fulfilled in two ways. And I, I think Steve mentioned this when he went through this passage a number of weeks ago. Months ago now, I guess. There's either always a son born in the line of David, son after son after son after son after son, all the way down throughout history, who then sits on the throne of the kingdom of David. Or there is one son who is born, who never dies, and his rule and reign is absolute, complete, and irrevocable. Those are the only two options to that promise and its fulfillment to David. Paul's argument is, is that Jesus is that son. Jesus is that descendant of David who comes and sets up his rule and reign and it will never be vanquished, never be extinguished, never disestablished. This was prophesied in the Old Testament and it's revealed in the New who that son is. The fulfillment of the gospel of God, the good news of God prophesied In the Old Testament scriptures, God's son, it's a person, it's an individual. The good news is not apart from God's son. He is a descendant of David. And then Paul adds this, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. We should not think that Paul means by this phrase that there was a a moment in time, uh, a, a moment in history, when Jesus Christ was not the Son of God. Paul's argument is not that Jesus was not the Son and then became the Son. Jesus has forever and always been ruling and reigning on high with the Father and Spirit as a member of the triune Godhead. So then, what does Paul mean by this? What does he mean by Jesus was appointed Son? Well, this appointment came in power, a specific power. Not just power in general or some abstract idea of might and power and strength. This is a very specific kind of power. Resurrection from the dead kind of power. Power that does not exist outside of God. Jesus has eternally been the Father's Son, but there was a moment in history when Jesus was not human. He has always been God and always been the Son, but he has not always been the human Son. The son has always been the Messiah, meaning Jesus has always and forever been the first and only choice. It's not like there was a list of messiahs, a list of people who were voted on to become sons. Jesus has always had that title, but that messiahship, that sonship the purpose for which he was sent to this earth to be a descendant of David and trace all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, that was not fully realized, fully accomplished until his death and resurrection. Jesus has always been Son and Messiah, but now he's a conquering Messiah. Jesus has always been Christ, but now he is a resurrected Christ. He now holds the power of death in his hand, no more in the power of Satan, Jesus Christ hold those, holds that power. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ empowers him to save all who believe in him. This is a power that, yes, always existed within Christ, but is now realized in his death and resurrection. Through him, Christ Jesus our Lord, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. This is another phrase that actually brackets the book as a whole. If you, It's actually in the same verse, chapter 16, verse 26. All the Gentiles coming to obedience that comes from faith. So two things that help, help us understand what Paul is talking about. Prophesied in the old, revealed in the new, and a call to the Gentiles. Those two things help us understand what Paul is doing in this book. The gospel of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, is for all the nations, not just for the Jew. It is for the Gentile as well. Paul's calling has been specifically to go to the Gentiles. We go back to Acts chapter 9. His apostleship was to go into the Gentile mission field. That's the purpose for which he was commissioned as an apostle of Jesus Christ. To call Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. And I think here's the message that we need to hear and remember over and over and over again. Faith, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, has something that comes from it. If faith exists, if genuine, saving, redeeming faith in Jesus Christ exists in your life, so does this other thing. And Paul's argument is, is that it's obedience. It's obedience to Jesus. Paul has this theme throughout his letters. And Paul's great anthem cry if you will in the New Testament is you are saved by grace alone through faith alone and nothing else. Full stop. End of sentence. Salvation comes by Jesus Christ in faith in him alone. But then moving on, the identifying marker of that saving faith in Jesus Christ, the grace that you have received, the thing that shows that that truth is is, is true in your life is obedience to the one who has saved you. You can't have one without the other. Faith and obedience, although not the same thing, and we shouldn't confuse the two. We shouldn't try to smush those two together and, and say that faith and obedience are really the same thing. They're not, but they are inseparable. Faith in Jesus Christ means obedience to Jesus Christ. And why in the world would you obey Jesus Christ if you did not believe in him? They, they go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. You don't have one without the other. If you have redeeming grace through Jesus Christ, you will naturally obey him. Why? Because the old is gone and the new has come. You are a new person. You are a new human being. Your spirit has been changed. Jesus has stepped into your life, removed your heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. You're a new person. You want to follow Jesus Christ, the one who has done that for you. It's only natural that obedience to Jesus follows faith in Jesus. Because, and here's why, because it's not for your name or your glory that you obey. So our obedience is not to earn faith. It's, our obedience is not to earn salvation. Our obedience is not to earn anything because it's not for us. It's not for our name. It's for his name's sake. Christians don't do things so people will look at us and think about how great we are or at how much we can do. You do them so that they will see and know Jesus. Remember this passage from Matthew. Jesus says these words, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify you? No. So they may glorify your Father in heaven. Every single action of a Christian is not for their name's sake. It is for the name and sake and glory of Jesus Christ in him alone. Our actions, stemming from faith in Jesus, are all for Jesus. Not for you. Paul uses a phrase here in verse six that I think we often miss the magnitude of. We we read it and we understand it, we get it, we accept it, we agree with it, but, but we don't chew on it as much as we should. Verse six you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus. Now he's obviously speaking to the Roman Gentiles here. He's writing this letter to the church in Rome. But he says that these guys, the the Romans, are also among those who are called to believe. Meaning there are others, including you and me, including those in Corinth and Athens and Russia. And there, there, there are people who are also called to believe in Jesus Christ. And they're called, and here's the part I think we so often miss, they are called to belong to Jesus Christ. When was the last time you woke up and remembered that you belong to Jesus Christ? You belong to him. You belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You belong to the creator of the universe. You belong to the lion and the lamb that we just sung about. You belong to the rider on a white horse from Revelation 20. You belong to the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Peace. You belong to the one who establishes and upholds his throne with justice and righteousness. You belong to the descendant of David whose rule and reign will never be taken away from him because he has earned it with his death and resurrection. You belong to Jesus. And I don't know how your week went. I don't know what struggles you're currently facing. I don't know what lies on the road ahead of you for the next coming weeks and months and years but you belong to Jesus you belong to him never forget that never forget that yes we're Canadian yes we're members of Crestwood Baptist Church yes we're members of this club and that thing and all those good stuff but you belong to Jesus you belong to the one who came and died and rose again i don't think you can be in safer hands verse 7 marks the end of Paul's greeting. That's 6 verses which took out a bulk of 16 chapters to go. That's the first 6 verses. Paul says this in chapter verse 7 to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Just as Christians are called to belong to Jesus, they are also called to be his holy people. And I don't think Paul here is addressing the behavior of a Christian at this point. He's talking about their status as being possessions of Jesus Christ, as belonging to him. There are passages that call Christians to be like Jesus, be holy as I am holy, do as Jesus does. There are those passages, and we are called to act and follow after our Lord and Savior. But Paul is saying here that a Christian, by definition of belonging to Christ, is holy. Just as you are called to belong to Jesus... Part of that package deal is you are called to be his holy people, called to be a holy individual. We went through some of this a number of months ago when we tackled uh, the first couple of books in the Old Testament. The items in the tabernacle, the lampstand, the table, the incense, even, even the ark... And the tabernacle tent itself, the curtains that went around the Holy of Holies, they were only holy because of who they belonged to. They were only holy because of who showed up and resided within it. A tabernacle without God's presence was just a tent. Maybe a nice-looking tent, but it was still just a tent without God. But it was made holy by who resided within it, who decided to come down from on high and overshadow the holy of holies, by who tabernacled within it. So to us as Christians, we are holy by nature of who resides within us. Yes, there's a lot of gunk that we've got to get out. There's a lot of work that Jesus still has to do in our lives. A lot of getting rid of sin but a recognition that by nature of being a child of God, a descendant of Abraham, by belonging to Jesus Christ, you are holy in God's sight. Not by nature of who you are or what you do, the little shovel that scooped up the ashes. That's not really a noble job in the tabernacle and yet was holy because it was for God's work. You are holy because of who you belong to. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul concludes his greeting and launches into some pretty heavy stuff, the first three chapters of Romans is not easy reading. But his words here echo some major Old Testament themes. Grace, undeserved and unmerited favor from God. That's good stuff. And peace, not just the absence of war, not just the absence of conflict, but this idea that all is well between me and God. I, ha- I stand in a right relationship with God. I have peace with God. You will not understand Paul's letter to the Romans apart from grace and peace of God. Hold on to the grace of God as you read of the depravity of man in the next three chapters we're pretty messed up as the human race. Hold on to that grace. Hold on to that unmerited favor. We need to rejoice and hang on to that peace as we move from chapters 2 and 3 into chapters 4 and 5 as we read of the peace we now have with God through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ has brought peace with God. And then as we move on to chapters 6 and 7, Culminating in chapters 8, we just have to explode with overwhelming joy and excitement at the life we now have in the Spirit. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hang on to that grace and peace as you go through this book. Hang on to the grace and peace of God as you go through some rough stuff in this life. Because you belong to Jesus. You have his grace, his peace, not mine, not Steve's. And I think I've said this before. Steve doesn't conclude his prayer at the end of the service, go in grace and peace because he's run out of things to say. He doesn't say go in grace and peace because it's a really good way to sign off the, s- the service. We need the grace and peace of God in our lives each and every day as we seek to follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We just got through the first seven verses. I just mentioned up to chapter 8. There's still another eight chapters. There's 16 chapters in the book of Romans. There's a lot in here. Do you rest in the grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you rest in him as a child of Abraham? Do you rest in him as you belong to him? not trying to find your identity, your worth somewhere else. If you belong to Jesus, worth is found nowhere else. It's not worth finding it anywhere else. You belong to Jesus. You belong to him. I'm going to ask our musicians to come up now as we sing in response to our king for his glory, not for our own. Father, we come to you. Our only hope in coming to you is through your son, Jesus Christ, We thank you for him, that he owns us, that we are in his hands and in nobody else's, that we belong to the King of Kings. We pray that we would rest in that this week. We pray that you would remind us of that this week, that you would help us to live like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.